Okay. Hello and welcome to the Sport Professor Podcast, the show for the sports student and fan who wants to learn more about the underpinnings of the sporting world. I'm your professor, Dr. Drew Sikansky, and today we will once again deep dive the intersection of game theory and sport by exploring how the source of money and who you are spending money on affects how games are played. Beginning with Milton Feynman's concept of the four types of spending, we will then move to discuss stadium finance and revenue sharing in professional sports. So if you ever wondered why cities should be cautious of spending money on new stadiums, or why teams in big markets are upset with the likes of the A's, Rays, and Marlins, then this is the podcast for you. So sit back, relax, and enjoy this episode of the Sport Professor Podcast. Today, I want to once again use the concepts present within game theory to break down various situations we are faced with in the world of sport. And more specifically, I want to talk about what game theory can teach us about spending money and how it relates to the topics of stadium financing and revenue sharing. But before we get into these topics more in depth, we need to begin by understanding what famed economist Milton Friedman calls the four types of spending. Now, within each of these types of spending, there are two variables that we have to consider. The first variable is whose money is being spent, and the second variable is who is that money being spent on. So the first type of spending that Friedman talks about is a situation where you are spending your own money on yourself. Now, in this case, you are very careful about what you spend your money on, about how much you spend, and about what you are getting. You look to get the most you can for every dollar you spend. In professional sports, this is akin to spending money on players. While oftentimes the general managers are the ones that are initiating these deals and trying to lure free agents to them. The ones that have the final say are the owners, and the owners are spending their own money that they're generating themselves on themselves, on a player that's going to directly benefit them. So they're not just looking to spend the most money they can to get players, they're oftentimes looking most at getting the best player they can at the best price. Now, The second situation that Friedman talks about is when you are spending your money on someone else. Here, you're very careful you don't spend too much money since it is yours, but you aren't overly concerned with what the other person is getting. Think of this as buying a present for someone. You want to get a good deal since it's your money, but you don't really care about getting the highest value for the other person. Oftentimes, we'll look to get things that are on sale. We'll look to see where we can save money because we're not the ones that are directly benefiting from the money that's being spent. The third scenario is when you're spending someone else's money on yourself. Now, in this situation, you're careful that you get good things for your money because you're the person that's going to directly benefit from what is bought. But since it's not your money, you're not looking for the cheapest thing possible. 
Think of this in terms of maybe having an expense account at work. The money that you're spending isn't yours. So you're not as careful to get the best deal or maybe the cheapest flight or the cheapest meal. But since you're buying the thing for yourself, you do want something that's a high value. You do want not just a flight, but the best possible flight or the best possible seats on that flight. You don't just want to go get food. You want good food or the best food that that money can buy. The final situation is when you are spending someone else's money on someone else. As you can imagine, in this situation, you aren't going to be as careful because you don't worry about either getting the best value for the money or about getting the best product because it's neither your money nor do you benefit from what's being bought. This is what the government is doing when they're spending taxpayers' money. The government is spending someone else's money on other people. So oftentimes, they're not that concerned with getting the best deal, which leads to a lot of criticism with overspending by the government. This is also how we classify revenue sharing in professional sports and financing stadiums. Because in both situations, the teams are spending someone else's money on other people. So they're not as concerned with the value that they're getting back. If there's waste, they don't care as much because they are not being harmed by it. So now that Friedman has provided us a framework for a conversation today, we need to next move to talk about how this ties in to game theory, and more specifically, how spending other people's money might affect how a game is played. Because remember, we don't spend other people's money as carefully as we spend our own. Spending other people's money changes our behavior. It causes us to evaluate things differently. It leads to more people taking more risk. And if the risk doesn't pan out, it's not as big a deal since it isn't your money that's being lost. And this applies not just to money. We can also apply the same principle spending other people's money to other things as well. For example, have you ever heard people in sports media make the argument that the best way to get rid of the issues of head injuries in football is to eliminate the use of helmets altogether. Why do they say this? It's the same thought process as people being more cautious spending their own money over spending someone else's. The argument is, if a player is wearing a helmet, they're going to take more risk because they think they are safer. They think it is less likely that they are going to get hurt. They think that they're invincible in many aspects. Whereas if they don't have a helmet on, they're going to be much more cautious. They're going to think more about what they're doing. They aren't going to take as many risks because the risk can result in them getting injured, can result in them losing their careers. Some people call this playing with house money, which refers to situations in gambling where the house or the casino might give players or comp players chips. Now, those chips aren't the gambler's monies. They're the casino's. And as a result, the player is going to make many more risky bets because if they lose, so what? They aren't losing their money, so they don't care. People in sports use this phrase as well to refer to teams that are big underdogs. They say that they have nothing to lose because they're just lucky to be in the game. They say they should take risks or go for it because if they lose, it's not a big deal because no one even expected them to be there, let alone to win. So the key lesson that we can take from this. So when individuals are playing with other people's money, 
they're going to take more risk. They're going to be less cautious and care less if they lose in the end because the money wasn't theirs in the first place. So mentally, they think that they actually haven't lost anything. So as we can see, the concept of spending other people's money can be applied to many situations, even in situations that have nothing to do with money. But today, I want to focus on two situations in sports that do deal with money. The first of which is stadium financing. But to understand how the principles of spending other people's money applies to stadium financing, we need to first understand the ins and outs of stadium financing. So let's begin by breaking down where the cost of stadiums comes from. And in general, there are two quote unquote things that cost money. One is the infrastructure and the other is the stadium itself. Now, infrastructure includes the cost of getting things like water, electricity, or phone lines out to the stadium. It also includes constructing roads out to the stadium or restructuring and rerouting other roads around the stadium to deal with new traffic patterns or, or to deal with the new roads that are being put in themselves. Once the stadium is finished, you also have to account for the cost of holding games and events in the stadium. So things like the traffic management that costs money, having police, security, fire safety, and ambulances all are going to cost money. All these things are funded through government entities, primarily through the taxes that are paid by citizens. In addition to that infrastructure cost, you're also going to have the construction cost of the stadium and arena itself. This includes not only the cost of building the facility, but also the cost of the land the stadium arena is placed on. All these costs have led construction of stadiums to grow to staggering amounts in recent years. Just looking at the five most expensive stadiums in the U.S. alone, according to SeatGeek.com, all five cost more than $1.5 billion to construct. With the new Los Angeles Stadium, which is going to be the home of the Los Angeles Chargers and the Los Angeles Rams, leading the way at $2.6 billion. Next is another new stadium that's currently being built, this one in Las Vegas for the Raiders at a staggering $2.4 billion. That's followed by Mercedes-Benz Stadium, which is in Atlanta, which costs $1.6 billion to build. And then fourth, Yankee Stadium, which costs $1.5 billion to build. Let's look at a few of these stadiums more in depth to see exactly where that funding came from. So if we first look at the ninth most expensive stadium, which is U.S. Bank Stadium, which is the home of the Minnesota Vikings, that's going to host the 2019 Final Four. Construction on that stadium began in 2013. It took three years to complete. By the time the stadium opened in 2016, it cost a total of $1.061 billion to finish. Now, according to Business Insider, of the $1.061 billion, $498 million, or 48%, was paid for by the public with $384 million coming from the state of Minnesota and $150 million coming from the city of Minneapolis. Now, on the other end of the spectrum, the number one stadium on our list, the Los Angeles Stadium, which is currently being built, is completely paid for by private funding, meaning the owner of the stadium is paying for all the construction costs with the city helping out with the infrastructure. So 
as you can see, there's quite a bit of variance in where stadium finances come from. A large portion of the funding for most stadiums is coming from the city and state, but some are actually being funded completely by the owners. Now, according to Forbes, quote, since 1997, the National Football League franchises have spent an average of more than $250 million in public money on 23 new and massively overhauled stadiums. As pointed out by Georgia State University Center for Sport and Urban Policy, 54 ballparks, arenas, and stadiums in North America have received nearly $11 billion in public funding since 2006 alone. As Judith Long noted in an article in the Journal of Sport Economics, quote, Governments pay far more to participate in the development of major league sport facilities than is commonly understood due to routine emissions of public subsidies for land and infrastructure and the ongoing costs of operations, capital improvements, municipal services, and foregone property taxes. Adjusting for these omissions increases the average public subsidies by $50 million per facility to a total of $177 million, representing a 40% increase over the industry-reported average of $126 million based on all 99 facilities in use in the big four sports during the 2001 year. Though this article is pretty dated, it highlights the extent to which government money is used to help construct stadiums. So why does all this matter? Well, it matters because it means that the people designing, building, and benefiting from the stadiums are spending, in large part, other people's money. And as we talked about at the beginning of this podcast, that means they are more likely than not not being as cautious with the money as they should be. So let's tie this back into game theory and see what game theory can teach us about the situation where a team is asking the community to pay for a stadium. Oftentimes, the team will position this as a sequential game. So remember, a sequential game is a game in which there are two players who make moves or decisions one after the other, with each decision being affected by the other player's previous move. The team will paint this picture of a sequential game, and they will tell the city that they have two options. They can either vote to fund a new stadium, or they can vote against funding a new stadium. The team often then tells the city that if they vote to fund the stadium, not only will the team stay, but the city will reap numerous benefits. They tell them that the new stadium will create construction jobs, that the stadium will allow the team to stay, thus creating work for people who will then spend the money in the community and expand local employment. They say that the team will attract tourists and other companies to the city and help the local economy. However, the team paints a pretty bleak picture saying that if the city votes against funding the stadium, they'll be forced to leave and move to another city that is willing to get them the stadium they want. And after all the arguments for and against the stadium are made, the members of the community are left with those two choices. Vote for an increase in taxes to fund the stadium or vote against the tax hike. And following the vote, the team is then faced with two choices regardless of whatever the vote is. They can either stay in the city or they can leave. Now, there is an increased likelihood they will stay in the city if they get the new stadium, but that's no guarantee. Because the city could still build a new stadium and the team could still leave in the future or the city can vote for the new stadium and the team might get a better offer from another city and choose to leave anyway. See, the St. Louis Rams in 2016 
who, even though the state of Missouri and the city of St. Louis offered them $400 million in state and city money for a new stadium to keep them in St. Louis, they left anyways. At this point, you might be asking yourself, what does this game have to do with spending other people's money? Well, taxpayers who are voting should not only understand the economic benefits and drawbacks of paying more taxes for a stadium, but they should also understand how the money for the stadium is going to be used. Why? Because since the people that are spending the money are spending other people's money, that is, the taxpayer's money, they are bound to not be as cautious with that money. They're more likely to overspend and not get the best value for their purchases, which oftentimes results in stadiums costing far more than they're expected to. The fault for the high cost in the stadium doesn't fall completely on those who are designing and building the stadium. Because game theory tells us that the companies that are selling goods or services to someone who is spending someone else's money should charge a higher price. Why? Because when we are determining how much we're going to charge for something, we need to consider not only who is buying the product, which is pretty obvious, but also whose money they're spending. Because as we have been saying, the person spending the other person's money isn't as concerned about the value of what they're getting. All they care about is getting what they're going after. So while this doesn't explain all the reasons that we see the escalating cost of stadiums, this is also due primarily to the increased cost of installing new technologies in stadium and the continual quest by teams to have the biggest and best stadiums leading to a keeping up with the Joneses effect. But it does allow us to see that the final cost is considerably higher than it needs when tax money is used to fund the stadiums. Now, on the other hand, when stadiums are funded completely with private money, that is, money that is the owner's, like is the case with the Los Angeles football stadium that's being built, the owners are spending their own money on themselves, which leads them to trying to get the best value for their money and being more effective with how they're spending that money. Knowing this, cities will often try to ensure the owners are more cautious with their money by forcing them to pay for part of the stadiums themselves and only providing a portion of the money from taxpayers. But this is oftentimes only partly successful and doesn't guarantee that the team will stay. To further illustrate these points that we're talking about, let's look at one other situation in sport where people are spending other people's money. And that is the situation of revenue sharing. According to the Financial Dictionary, Revenue sharing is, quote, the practice of splitting a company's profits or losses between parties. For example, a partnership shares revenue between partners in accordance with each other's share in the company. In sports, this is done through splitting or sharing numerous things that generate revenue for the league. So, for example, leagues like the NFL and MLB split gate receipts, that is, the money that they make from ticket sales. In the NFL, that means for regular season games, the home team gets 60% of the revenue generated from ticket sales, and the away team gets 40%. And in the playoffs, both teams get an equal 50%. In Major League Baseball, American League teams split ticket sales 80-20, with 80% of the revenue going to the home team and 20% going to the away team. And NL teams split revenue 95-5, with the home team getting the lion's share of the revenue. The three major professional leagues, the NFL, the NBA, and Major League Baseball, all share revenue generated from national TV deals as well. 
and they generally all share the money that they make from the sale of licensed merchandise like shirts or hats. Now, there's some caveats to this as teams get to keep all the money made from the sale of merchandise at their team store in the stadium or on their team online website. And then there's the Cowboys who have some different rules altogether, but in general, they're pooling that money and then splitting it amongst all the teams. Major League Baseball further shares revenue from local TV deals as each team is required to give 48% of their net local revenue to the league, which pools together all the money and then divides it equally amongst all teams. Major League Baseball and the NBA also engage in revenue sharing by taxing teams that spend more than a certain amount of money on salaries. For example, in Major League Baseball in 2019, any team that spent more than $206 million has to pay a tax. If it's the first time that they've gone over this tax, they have to pay $0.20 cents on every dollar they are over. The second year in a row that they're over that tax, that jumps to $0.30 cents on every dollar. And the third and every year after that in a row, it jumps all the way to $0.50 cents on every dollar. And then all that tax money is pooled together at the end of the year and distributed to the teams that did not exceed the tax threshold. The NBA has a similar system, though theirs is a bit more complicated as they don't charge a set amount for every dollar that they're over. Rather, they charge a different amount depending on how much you're over the cap and how many years in a row you've been over it. In the end, though, the key thing to understand for our conversation today is that each league pulls money that they receive from various means and then distributes that money back to the teams. They do this, according to them, to help with competitive balance. That is, they want to make sure that the teams in the bigger markets like New York or Los Angeles, Boston or Chicago, which generate more revenue because of the size of the city, that those teams aren't the only ones that have a chance to win a championship. The thought is that providing smaller markets like Milwaukee or Memphis or San Antonio with some of the money that the bigger markets generate then the smaller markets will be able to spend that money on better players and help them compete against the bigger markets. We want to have that competitive balance so that every fan base feels like their team has a chance to win the title. But, hopefully as you're recognizing, there's a big potential flaw in this logic. Because as we've shown, we don't spend other people's money the same way we spend our own. Let's just look at the MLB to help really drive home this point. CBS News reported that, quote, in 2006 and 2007, the Florida Marlins reportedly received more than $60 million in revenue sharing, but the team had an opening day payroll totaling only $45.5 million. So what does this mean? The Marlins, without even selling a single ticket to a single game, were making over $14 million. So where is that revenue money going? Well, rules governing Major League Baseball revenue sharing state that money can only be spent on on-the-field improvements, meaning player salaries, first and foremost, then things like scouting and baseball operations staff. So what are the teams like the Marlins doing with their money? No one knows. At this point, they are playing with house money. They don't even have to make a profit from their product. They don't have to worry about getting the best players or even about fielding a competitive team. In addition to that, what incentive do they have to even market their team, to promote their team to the local community, to ensure that the product they have on the field is winning? 
they have almost none. Because in addition to some people being more willing to take more risk when they're playing with house money or when they're spending other people's money, they sometimes have an incentive just to pack up and to take that other person's money and just keep it for themselves rather than spend it. As you can imagine, Major League Baseball teams and players have noticed these practices and have not been happy. As Fangraphs reported in an article just earlier this year, quote, the teams on the lower end of the revenue spectrum are supposed to spend the funds they receive on the field. Last year, the Major League Baseball Players Association filed a grievance alleging that the A's, Marlins, Pilots, and Raves were not doing so. The players aren't the only groups that have been upset about revenue sharing. The Yankees have complained about it for several years. Because of these issues, the owners of the biggest market teams, which are seeing the money they work hard to make go to pay for more than just the operating costs of the other teams, and players who are not getting that money have incentives to try to get these rules changed, to get rid of revenue sharing altogether, and as a result, potentially significantly harm the competitive balance in Major League Baseball. So hopefully, our conversation today about spending other people's money has taught you a little about how the source of the money can change how a game is played and change a player's actions, incentives, and motives. Whether it's spending taxpayers' money on stadiums or franchise money on players or choosing to take that house money and just go home. Situations arise in sport all the time in which teams and organizations have access to money that is not theirs. And as people are interested in learning more about sport management and potentially working in the field in the future, we hopefully have helped you learn how to account for the source of money and what effect that that might have on spending. As always, if you have any questions about this topic or any other topic related to game theory and sports, please feel free to reach out to us on Instagram at the Sports Professor. Follow us for weekly updates about our podcast topics and let us know if you have any ideas for new ones. Until next week, I hope you've enjoyed this episode of the Sport Professor Podcast.